0: Hello, and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Radlick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. As people uh, know, we're in the midst of a climate change debate, and we're heading into a COP26 conference that makes talk first on climate change and and looking at the direction of the uh, uh, mitigation of emissions, and then looking at how people kind of cool the planet down. One of the uh, one of the issues that uh, comes with that is how companies tell the story about what they do with respect to uh, managing the scarce resources of the environment that they use and have an impact on in the work they do and with their uh, with the company with, with the owners and the shareholders and other stakeholders uh, today i'll be joined by price waterhouse cooper's partner uh, matthew Lund, who's um, A bit of a guru in the the audit and accounting space. He's been around for a while um, and has dealt with financial reporting and audit audit issues across the board. So he'll be talking to me about a piece of survey work PricewaterhouseCoopers has done looking at environmental, social and governance reporting across the top 200 companies in the ASX and talking a bit about what companies should be looking for toward when they consider what's coming out of COP26. And Matt, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Nice to be here. Absolute pleasure to to touch base again. Now, before we move on to the survey work the firm's done, which is is fascinating, there's a whole group of leaders heading into uh, Glasgow. They're having a discussion about uh, where to take things in terms of the environment, and and managing environmental um, concerns, environmental risks globally. You see it from a different perspective in practice. Uh, You engage a lot with the listed company clients and directors, et cetera. What are the things companies need to be on the lookout for with respect to um, the developments uh, out of Glasgow?
1: Look, I think Tom that uh, you and I know, right? That um, you know financial reporting is is pretty important. Yeah, you, know, you and I think that. Perhaps some others don't, but but financial reporting is pretty important in terms of getting things done. Because what gets reported, what gets measured, actually matters to the people in companies. They make changes to their strategy. They impact the environment that we're in, right, the business environment, and 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 as we well aware, the physical environment. So in relation to COP twenty six, you talked about it being. A talk fest. Well, yes, look, there's lots of discussion there from, from world leaders around what our, our country is going to do in relation to climate change. At the same time, there's a bit of an undercurrent that I would say. Uh, you would have seen, and I know you follow these things pretty closely, you would have seen that the IFRS Foundation formed the International Sustainability Standards Board earlier in the year. Now, and that's intended to sit alongside the International. Accounting Standards Board, something that you and I have been intricately involved with for, for many years. Now, actually forming a board that is going to set sustainability standards is hopefully going to achieve an aim that I think is very, very important. And I think many others do as well, in that we will establish finally a single framework under a very well recognised framework, the IFRS Foundation, that will set standards that companies can follow. Because one of the problems we have is that we don't have a globally recognised framework. So that means that companies are effectively deciding what they want to disclose in relation to climate change is one thing, but but even further in relation to sustainably more broadly uh, and ESG topics. When when they're disclosing what they want to disclose, that means that investors can't compare across companies or, or they may not disclose those things that, many investors actually think they should disclose. So I think certainly the undercurrent that I'd be looking out for in relation to, to COP26 is what more are we going to hear about that, right? The other thing that you'd also be aware of is that the um, in the EU, you've heard about the EU taxonomy, which is setting you know, definitions for what are sustainable activities. You've probably heard about the corporate sustainability reporting directive, right, that is going to require a very large number of EU companies to actually report in relation to sustainability, And as part of that, the EU is going to set its own standards. And I think they're tightly bound up as well with with COP26. So it'd be great to hear some clarity out of COP26 about that undercurrent because, you know, it's great for the the countries to say they're going to do this, but you actually want to know, well, the things in your countries, the companies in your countries, what are they going to be required to report, which is then going to drive their behaviour?
0: The thing that's interesting about the developments in, in, in London at the moment with the sustainability Accounting Standards Board, of course, is that it, it represents an advance in thinking, doesn't it, Absolutely. with the with the account with, with the way in which we look at accounting and accountability. Absolutely, because up until the past couple of decades, when we've seen uh, sustainability frameworks and corporate governance reporting frameworks jump up all over the place like toadstools, mm. what the focus has been on. Scarce the impact that an entity has on the scarce resources in it, it directly controls within its borders, not necessarily the impact on scarce resources outside. Um you'd probably agree, yeah. <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong here, mm-hmm. but we're now in an era where people acknowledge that it's not just what a listed company does within its own border that needs to be accounted for, but the impact on the the, the allocation of scarce resources of shareholders, but also the impact on the scarce resources of stakeholders outside, including the the environmental impact. Yeah.
1: and Well, I think you're referring to, and, and many of your listeners might know, the concept of double materiality, right? So actually understanding and disclosing both what your impact on society is, what your impact on the environment is, as well as what the impact of certain things are, on you, so what the transition risks are and what the physical risks are. So I, I think that's exactly right, and and that's that's really important. And we have seen a huge uptick. So when you and I used to spend a lot of time together back in the old Urgent Issues Group days, Tom, you know, twenty years ago, uh, integrated reporting Stop was around. Don't making then. me
0: feel old. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but in, integrated reporting was around then, right? And and you know I used to be involved in that, and and you, I was trying to encourage companies to disclose more in integrated fashion, but it was really difficult to do so. And, and as you have pointed out. We've seen a huge uptick recently, a huge change in in what companies are starting to do and starting to think about doing and what frameworks are popping up all over the place. You said like Toadstools, Certainly there are, and that's why I think this fundamental change by having the IFRS Foundation actually establish this board that's going to bring a lot of those frameworks together in a one recognised framework. There's obviously another big step that I know you know about that would have to happen after that to then get companies to do it, but but certainly we've got the starting of a a globally accepted framework.
0: Well, we know why OSCO's accepted it. We know the G7 finance ministers have accepted it. The challenge in that space is then, hey, making it mandatory. Yeah. Um, My understanding of accounting frameworks right from when I first started looking at the accounting space back in 1995, when uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex walked the earth, yeah, yeah. was um, accounting standards specify minimums. Yes, they don't place a ceiling. Yes. Entities have always been free to disclose whatever they wish to. Yes. What drives the What drives the need for compulsion?
1: Well, look, you know, that's that's a really interesting question. And actually, um, I believe that disclosure of things like climate, your impact on climate, what you're going to do about mitigating, as you referenced before, your disclosures around um, social and your policies in relation to social diversity, um, inclusion, are actually a value differentiator. I actually think that showing that you're doing better at those things and so, effectively, as you're talking about disclosing more, make you more attractive as a company. So, I, I think I think there's a big impetus, Tom, for for companies to go beyond, and and it actually becomes, you know, and I'd you know not necessarily the best turn of phrase, but a bit of an arms race. And that's what you want. You want this arms race because this is a great arms race. If companies are striving to be the best company in terms of climate, the best company in terms of social uh, uh, commitments, the best company in in terms of the way they govern themselves, we want that, right? That's a great arms race. Let's have that every day. And I think that there is an impetus for companies to do it because you've got now huge investor groups and you've seen many of them come out and say we are only going to invest in companies that are sustainable, we're only going to invest in companies that um, you know uh, have a, a make a difference in the world. So that's actually showing you that capital flows are actually making it a really good reason to be better.
0: There's there's an interesting question there, and I, I know this this sort of cuts cuts a little close to home for for you as a as a person that deals with audit. But yep. um, it's an interesting cycle. Because institutional investors invest in financial institutions. Financial institutions are considering to whom they might lend money. That okay. is, it. Are, are, the, are certain kinds of companies um, more risky to the environment or are certain kinds of companies likely to not be around for an extended period yep. of time? Therefore, so it becomes a part of the business cycle, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But, look, I think there there is a fundamental paradigm change, and I'll sort of start with that and link back to what you're alluding to, Tom. There's there's a fundamental paradigm change, and and that is that um, just because you are a large fossil fuel company doesn't mean you always have to be a large fossil fuel company, right? The people that are investing in you aren't necessarily investing in you. In fact, I think in very rare cases, investing in you solely because you're a fossil fuel company. They're investing in you because they believe that the money they've given you is in good hands with the board and management, and that board and management have a great strategy that's going to mean you're one not not only just going to get your money back, but you're going to get a good return on it. They're not necessarily solely bought into that you have to have that return on investment from fossil fuels. And what you see already is very large fossil fuel companies thinking about their future. What will they be? in many cases, looking at how do they become renewable fuel companies. So so that's the, the change in paradigm. I think that's becoming a reality. When you look at, and you were alluding to big financial institutions and banks and how they lend, similarly, I think it's really relevant to look at E and S together, right? So a large financial institution, and you're alluding to scope three emissions, so they get measured on, who they lend to, the emissions of those people they lend to, that's their scope three emissions that they would disclose. A large financial institution um, that lends to companies that might be high emitters, one, wants to make sure that over time its scope three emissions reduce. Now, it can do that two ways. It can either um, stop lending to those people, right, and I'll come back to that, or it can work with those companies and people as they transition over time to be lower emitters. Now, going back to that first part, by stopping to lend to big emitters right now, you're actually probably failing the S part of your ESG, because you have a social responsibility to make sure that you do things in a a way that doesn't harm the community. And if you just quickly pulled out of every fossil fuel emitter, you, you can devastate communities, you can devastate people, particularly if you're a very large lender. So I think you've got to balance the E and the S. You've got to say, okay, we have to get our Scope 3 emissions to trend down, and you've heard about glide paths. I know you'd be all over this, Tom, right, and and the the, uh, Science-Based Targets Initiative and looking at sectors and how the glide paths work. You've got to work out, well, how do we over time work with our customers to help them transition to a a lower um, emitting future um, so that we also meet our social responsibility.
0: Now, that's a convenient segue to look at the actual survey work the firm's done. I, mean, I it, thought it, we might
1: get around to the survey eventually, Tom.
0: Uh, no, no, you've been doing quite well on the other stuff. <laughs> Why would I interrupt you? Oh, the um, you. Uh, the and You've got a series of uh, bullet points that are fascinating. 87% of top 200 companies that have returned substantial meaningful ESGs, and it's up from... 29, 29% yep. from last year, which means things are improving. Absolutely. Um, what are the other observations from the work the firm's done in this space looking at the top 200 that you think are important?
1: Yeah. So, look, I, I think um, we need to differentiate um, uh, information from strategy, right, because... Disclosure of information it is fantastic. Like it's really important that companies disclose information. But actually, without it actually being embedded in the strategy of the company, then it's really not meaning much. And so what we really want to see, and so so don't get me wrong, the report shows that there's been a significant improvement across a wide range of areas. However, that doesn't mean there isn't room for more improvement. And one of the areas that we would see for improvement is that we need more companies to, in addition to stating targets, and there's even room for improvement there, to then have plans with short, medium and long-term goals that are tied to executive remuneration, right? And you know that if we actually get it tied to executive remuneration, it's going to start happening, right? Because executives are going to start making the changes to meet the targets in accordance with the short, medium, long-term goals that impacts their remuneration. So I think that's one of the big observations that I think um, that, that, that we'd like to make from the report.
0: I think the, let me sort of tease a couple of things out with you, because something you said there is particularly, I won't say profound, but it is important. When we talk about information that is just fact, yep. then you talk about strategy. That is, yep. you're overlaying, you're, you're um, asking people to cut a vein and bleed a little bit more. Yep. Now, one of the challenges in getting corporates to bleed a little bit more in yep. public disclosure is that they're not only disclosing to shareholders when things hit the ASX, mm-hmm. They're also disclosing to competitors. Mm-hmm. In looking at disclosure and in talking to people in corporates about how they get more comfortable about having a more open conversation with the market, what are the things you're finding? The old hesitancies of disclosing things that might assist competitors, for want of a better word, Mm -hmm. disappearing?
1: Look, I I, I think um, I'd answer that in two ways. So, one, you know, I've long been somewhat critical of that argument, right? I I think that you'd have to go a long way in terms of your disclosure at a very, very detailed level to really give up a competitive advantage because, you know, arguably. You know, you've got strategies, many of those strategies in terms of new products are actually already observable to the market in many ways because you're you're putting the product out there. Um, you're not giving away, you know, if, if it's a if it's a physical product, you're not giving away the chemical formula that created the product, but but the new products there and what, what attractive about that new product. So I've been pretty critical of you know, really, are you really going to give up a competitive advantage by disclosing more? So I'm a bit critical of that. Secondly, though, I think that and something I think you're alluding to is it, it is reducing. The resistance to that in this area is reducing because I think that um, just going back to that S part and, and, and I think, you know, the, the social responsibility, the social licence that companies have has become much more apparent. So if you look at, say, financial institutions during COVID, I think there's been a recognition both in the institutions themselves, in government and in the public, that actually they play a big role in society. So they have a social responsibility and they've actually embraced it. Like, but They've put their arms around and said, you know what, we we will look at how we treat the public through difficult times. We'll look at how we defer loans and things like that. So the, the, the social part has actually then driven perhaps a recognition. Well, you know what, it's our responsibility to disclose more. It's our responsibility to tell um, uh, the public, not just the shareholders, but the public how we're going about meeting all of the commitments that, that we've made. And, and, and I think, you know, that goes with also a recognition that, you know, really, are we actually going to give up a, a competitive advantage by saying this is how we're going to meet our climate goals better? I don't think so.
0: Now, the you know, companies are happy to tell good stories, and we see that all the time, you know, something's launched, something that, you know, we're yep. employer, we're the... Um, Bit of employer of the year or the you know whatever it happens to be, yeah. all those wonderful awards people get. But one of the interesting points that that comes up in the work you've done yeah. is that there's not a narrative in about half of the ASX 200 company reports that have been analysed that talks about the negative impacts on their operations. Yeah, can you expand on that?
1: Look, I think, I think that goes to that concept of double materiality uh, uh, that we talked about earlier. And there is a need for companies to consider, not just in relation to climate change, what's the impact on us, right? We actually need to think about exactly how are all our operations impacting outside, How are imp- what, what are the negative impacts, right? Because we talk about it, you're right, companies love to talk about the positive side, but also what are the negative impacts? Because if you, you need to disclose those, measure those, own up to those, And then have plans to actually reduce that negative impact over time. So I think that's another area for improvement that that we've seen. And I think that goes with that social responsibility. And and the fact is, my personal opinion, is that you don't get criticised for disclosing the negative. In fact, I think you get a positive tick for disclosing the negative, so long as you also have a plan for how you're going to address that.
0: That observation in terms of disclosing the positives and the negatives comes with something else. Um, And it may become easier with the introduction of sustainability accounting standards across the globe in the same way as IFRS has been introduced. Uh, What what role do regulators play in gingering up and tickling companies up to to, to make sure they're... Uh, disclosures
1: are somewhat fulsome. Look, that goes back to an earlier point you made about making it mandatory. I think we have to get to a point, and, and Australia, as we all know, has really lagged behind. Now, that lag in terms of us requiring certain disclosures is sort of becoming less relevant as, one, many companies just choose to disclose things in accordance with overseas frameworks, like the TCFD, or two, are being driven to do so because of their operations overseas, or by or through their investors or, or stakeholders. So I think Australia has lagged behind. I think we need to move to a point where it becomes mandatory, which gives regulators the opportunity to enforce certain things. Right at the moment, they're they're a bit um, uh, a bit toothless in that regard. However, you are seeing moves by um, APRA, um, certainly all APRA regulators, and you might be aware of the the Climate vulnerability assessments that is required for, for some of the largest banks to submit um in relation to you know what is the impact of climate um on their their business. So so there are regulators are stepping into that breach, but you know, they're sort of limited. So with APRA they've got quite broad powers, but um but more broadly than that, right? Companies, there's lots of companies that aren't regulated by APRA, for example. ASIC doesn't have many powers um unless they were able to, as you well know, identify that a significant risk that impacted the financial statements and the numbers disclosed there or the future of the company had not been disclosed. But where we're at at the moment is that you know whilst you know the IPCC report said that you know the impact of humans on on warming the planet is now an accepted fact, right? Even though we're at that point, you know there's still a lot of you know it's, it, when when is that impact going to occur? How does that uh, occur in terms of physical risk? How does that? What does that impact in terms of transition risk? There's still a bit of a time frame sort of. It's not that clear on. So, so are, is it actually impacting financial statements now? Um, but, but certainly, ASIC doesn't have a lot of power unless they identify a, a clear and present lack of disclosure of something that's material.
0: And and having a framework in place certainly enables them to do that. Uh, Absolutely. Do that more robustly. Yeah. The. Other challenge that um, is faced here, we can look at, you know, we, we've we spoken about you know, the development of frameworks, why frameworks are necessary, and the regulatory um, impact, and also the role of stakeholders and institutional mm-hmm. shareholders. Yeah. There's something else that kicks in, and it, 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 it's the same issue that people were told about when IFRS was being introduced. Back when um, I was a young tacker running around in short pants, yes, and that is um, the skill sets that are required in companies, yeah, in order to do this well. Yeah. What are the What are the things that come to mind that 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 are required for companies to be able to execute? This properly because it's clear disclosure is going to be required. Yeah. What do you need? What do you need in the box that's in as a corporate entity um, to be able to do this well? Yeah.
1: So, and I think when you look at the report, one of the the points that we uh, made was that um, uh, 41% of companies don't include any ESG skills as required skills in their board skills matrix. So, I think it has to start from the top. You need to make sure that your board, and it's not the whole board, right? So as we've seen over time, you know, there's been that um, that swing, right? Where we yeah, years ago it was like every board member had to have experience in the industry that the company operated in. Then we swung away from that. They said, oh, actually, no, we want diversity. We want lots of different skill sets. And I think, you know, certainly in some companies leading into the GFC, for example we realise, well, actually, no, 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 maybe we need a bit more understanding of the industry in which, and it's got back to be a balance. You need some specific industry experience sitting on the board for the company's own industry. I think you then need a mix of other skills for future risks and for future things that are going to impact, right, and other areas that might provide that diversity. One area is a level of skill on the board that might be embodied in one or two people. Um, that have specific skills in the areas of the E, S and G factors that are important to that company. I think you also need to make sure that you have a level of general awareness across the board. So that's part of ongoing board education. So that starts at the top. I think that's important. I think as you go down then, I think you need to have a governance framework where companies, particularly those that have a big impact, um, uh, need to have a governance framework where you actually make sure that you've got the right people focused on this and that the strategy that you're applying, and that's what we talked earlier about in the conversation, is embedded across the organisation. So you've got to, and, and that might mean you need to employ new skills into the company. Um, you might need people who've ac- actually had experience in the past in relation to those things that are most important. Um, that, and that goes that goes across all the things. It may not just be about emissions and climate impacts. It can go to, you know, the social aspects and diversity and inclusion because, you know, it, it's, it's hard sometimes to, to learn all the new things you need to learn as well as running your, your day job, and things can, you know, get beyond you.
0: But even if you deal with it up top at board, yeah. you've got to fire up middle management. Absolutely. Um, and you need competence in middle management because the people who brief the board yeah. are right beneath them. Um, yeah. So what what are there any observations that you you've, you've noticed from from people you deal with and how they're coping with the demands that will come with you know newer information newer information that needs to be included because yeah. me- measuring emissions measuring what a company does even when it, whether it's sound yeah it, even in the area of manufacturing, you know, how much sound does a plant emit, all yes. that sort of stuff. Yes. Um, that's a completely different scenario to doing a cash flow analysis, right?
1: Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, look, and and, and you're right. Like, it, it basically, it does require a different skill set um, in uh, certain areas. So you may need to employ people that have um, a different background than those you've got. Right? So you do need to look at that, and, and you're right, so that, that skills matrix at a lower level, not just at the board, but you've got to start with the board, right, because that does flow down. It's the questions the board asks and the answers that they get back that are most important. To answer them properly, you need to actually have the right people with that. That doesn't mean you wholesale change everyone. That's just, of course, it's like any transition over time. Um, It's a combination of new skills in potentially new people and raising the skills and awareness of the others that you have. So I think that you're you're right. You definitely need to think about that across the organisation. And as we see, when you look at our... Yeah, our own recruitment for PDBC, um, and the graduate intake. Yeah, the what we're we're looking at the skills we bring into the firm, right, at, at its lowest level, as well as different levels on the way up. And big corporations are no different, right? They need to think about the the youngest people they bring in, and they bring different skills. They've got different degrees or different aspects of their degrees, and it flows all the way up.
0: The, it, I guess it's a, a convenient way to sort of wrap things up, I mean, how, if we can look at the two sets of frameworks briefly, um, that being the financial reporting and then, you know, integrated reporting slash global reporting initiative slash, you know, triple bottom line, you know, (laughs) whatever, Um, to what extent do you think, given your your history and background, yeah. Yeah. um is we're gonna be a bit of crossover in what we see. where are the two uh, what we see develop over time, or are the two broad areas very much separate and distinct?
1: No, no, no. Well, it's it's really interesting you asked that question, right? So I'm not sure if you've seen it, but Mark Carney wrote a book in um, uh, March we've got released in March called it was value but with a bracket s values value and values um, and it's called building uh, a better world for all. Now in that he talks about the link between values and value, and I think this is exactly what you're getting at, Tom. The, the 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 what you're alluding to. So the valuations that are adopted in a financial set of financial statements are actually impacted by the values that a company adopts. Right, so. Uh, the the valuation of a particular item of plant and machinery is impacted by how it operates in the environment, what what decisions it makes about how it's going to operate in the future, what are the cash flows that then derive into the valuation that drives the, the plant and equipment. So I think that that they, they are totally um, uh, interacted. And, in fact, one of the things that companies haven't been great at, I think, um, in disclosing to date is that, actually, to the extent that there was a material deterioration in the fair value of something that's carried at fair value as a result of climate, that is built in there. It's there, right? It's not being ignored, but they don't necessarily disclose that fact as well as they might. Um, I think think that will become much more apparent as as we have disclosure impacts. What are the assumptions around climate, for example, in valuations of of financial instruments and other things? But certainly I think they're intricately linked, and I think that, that Mark Carney book drives towards that.
0: I think you've got, a, um, uh, you've got a lot of work that's been done in the survey and uh, there's been a lot of ground that we've covered. Matt, where do people go to have a look at the uh, the survey itself online if they want to have a bit of a look after they've listened to this?
1: Yeah, well, you can certainly see it on our uh, website, so www.pwc.com uh, and search the Australian um, arm of that website. Um, it's there, easily downloadable. Uh, pretty easy to find. There's also quite a bit of other information that, you know, we're pretty proud of in relation to uh, things that we've got in relation to ESG. So looking at green hydrogen and other documentation and, and thought leadership pieces um, about the future. Because certainly it's something that's, you know, passionate, I'm passionate about and the firm itself is passionate about as well.
0: Okay. That brings to an end um, the, uh, our chat for today. Look, Matt, Matt, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an interesting discussion and a bit of a look at COP26 and where things are around the regulatory framework, but also, also the work the firm's done. So thank you so much for joining no me. No worries. Thanks, mate. Nice to talk to you. Cheers. Thank you. Okay.